Before we get started, I want to take the opportunity to talk about our partner for this podcast, BravoPay. BravoPay is a marketplace and payment platform for musicians and content creators like streamers, sports influencers, personal trainers, and, well, podcasters. You can create a fan page on their app and set up shop offering physical and digital products as well as premium subscriptions. It's easy to share your Bravo link with others on your social media so that, for the rest of you, can support your favorite creators. Check it out at app.trybravo.com. I'll also leave a link in the description. You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Welcome everybody to The 80-20 Show. I am your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Todd McCarty from Band Builder Academy. Now, Todd has an amazing story of how he started touring and tour managing bands at an early age, which built him so many relationships that eventually led him to working at Fearless Records during the pinnacle of the alternative music scene for over 13 years. In addition, we also talk about his current venture, Band Builder Academy, which is an online platform for fan building for artists. I hope you enjoy this interview with Todd McCarty. Hey, Todd, thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Mike. Genki desu. That's Japanese for I'm doing well. That's fantastic. And <laughs> so can you explain more of that why, why you said uh, Japanese? Uh, where are you currently located? Yeah, I'm in Japan. I'm, uh, two, I'm four years into what was supposed to be a two-year stint in Japan. I'm, I'm married to a Japanese, and we have a daughter. She's nine now. Oh, wow. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So she was five when we left, and the idea was we're going to get her some um, Japanese education and, and make her fully bilingual and bi- bicultural, but bi- you know, so she can read and write in both languages, and also for me to start a business. Um, so that's what I'm doing in Japan. And you know, one thing led to another. The pandemic happened, and I'm still here. Um, so, I, and I'm not even sure like when we'll be back. It's just kind of one of those we'll see how it goes thing that's but fantastic. i love it here that's great i've always wanted to visit japan that's definitely on the top of my list so when when it's safe to do so that's definitely one of the uh number one places i've always wanted to go to is japan i'm i'm a huge nerd everyone who listens to the podcast knows i'm a gigantic nerd so when when you're Lots like of nerds here yeah like when you're super <laughs> into like nintendo and things like that and i'm a bit and a big disney nut too so it's like uh, you know and just japanese culture is just absolutely amazing so yeah, it's definitely on top of my list. You should come. Yep, definitely will. So we're not here to talk about me and my travel endeavors. We're here to talk about you. So yeah. uh, can you talk about, we're going to go way back to the beginning, how you got started into uh, into music. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm sort of a lifer. I've, I've always known that I wanted to be involved in music from a young age. Um, from I was a drummer from a young age you know, elementary school band and middle school and jazz band and, and then punk rock bands. <laughs> so just been doing it for a long time. I, I'm lucky in that I never had to have any questions about what I was going to do. I, I knew I was going to do music. And I first started wanting to be a drummer and then had a business interest and had come from a family of five siblings and, and um, you know, business-minded people, college. Every, I was the youngest. All of my brothers and sisters went to college. So I was, sort of felt the expectation to go as well, even though I wanted to be a drummer. Um, so yeah, but, but I, uh, I did, I did um, get a history degree. Um, and, but I was playing in bands and from an age of 15 on, and I never stopped. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of how I got into it. Um, but I was always kind of doing business from an early age. I think like at age 16 or something in high school, we were pressing vinyl records for our punk rock band and, you know, promoting shows and even booking tours on like spring break and summer break and doing uh, press and, you know, street marketing, handing out posters and flyers. And this is a little bit pre-internet. So um, yeah, just I'm, I'm 44 years old and I was in high school in 1990. 
before I graduated, 1990 to 1994. So that's a little bit pre-internet. That's when I was doing all this and sort of learned music industry stuff from a young age, um, promoting and releasing records. Um, my playing career was with several different bands. I was down in Florida during this. I was, I was born and raised in Washington, DC and Virginia area, and then moved to Florida for high school. And, and it was there for college as well. But it was a cool scene in Orlando, Florida, where I was at, um, still is. But um, in those days, like um, I was coming up with bands like Hot Water Music and the Vacant Andes who became, um, you know, like Dashboard Confessional, that, that's what his original band was. Um, and there was just, yeah, there was like a lot of like Hot Water Music was down there and blood bloodlet just a lot of cool like punk and hardcore bands and uh, that was the scene that i came up in and um after my band like during and after my bands were active i was tour managing as well because i was tour managing my own bands but then i got into it um with record labels as well being tour manager for a couple of different labels doing like i had scandinavian bands from norway and sweden and japanese band called eastern youth um, and then, you know, some, some us artists as well and went on a lot of cool tours. That's incredible. Um, yeah. So, and then I knew I wanted to do business. So the band thing was going not so well, but you know, the music industry thing started taking off around age 22, 23 in that time frame after college. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of the story you want, but uh, no, there. this is fantastic. I'm curious though, like when you were, uh, when you actually end up tour managing for other labels, was that because of, they knew that you were managing your own tour, managing your own bands or how did that come about? Yeah, that's an interesting story. So, um, this is kind of ties back into the Japan thing as well. My, my lifelong interest in Japan. So, um, in, in, uh, I went to college and during college, I started, there was something on American Online, AOL. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it was like an early internet message type thing. And there was these like um, forums where you could like have a pen pal around the world. And I started trading CDs with this guy in Japan. And uh, he sent me cool punk rock bands from Japan and I sent him the same from America. And uh, he gave me this band, Eastern Youth, and it just became my favorite band. They're like a kind of a post-hardcore punk, like Fugazi, Discord Records influence band from, from Japan. And I loved them. And uh, so I, I actually started a fan site for them. Here I am, a musician in bands, but I love this band so much. I started um, an English website for them. And uh, there was nothing, it was all in Japanese. So I, I was the only one providing English language news on this band and uh i got to know the band through that their record label hit me up i imagine getting this email when you're like i don't know i was maybe like 23 or 22 or something they're like we um we know you do the website for eastern youth uh, we're going to be coming to america and playing shows with at the drive-in would you like to come on tour with us <laughs> like oh my whoa God. wow <laughs> absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so I, um, you know, actually come to think of it, this was just after college because I, and, and the year after driving a taxi cab, like after college, I drove a taxi cab and then the next year I got a real job and I was doing sales for a telecom company. And that was great. I learned how to be a, you know, professional sales guy or whatever. And, um, but I quit that job to go on tour with Eastern youth at the drive-in and murder city devils. And that's um, incredible. That, yeah, that was the reason. So um, that was my first tour managing gig, being on tour with At The Drive-In. And it was an interesting one because it was their, their, I had seen the band many times when they'd come through Orlando, but um, that was their final US tour, actually. This was really? 2000. This would have been like, uh, I guess like 2000, 2001, that, that time frame, And um yeah, that was their final tour in the U.S. And they went to Australia a little bit later and, and broke up after that on, on, on the Big Day Out show. But uh, yeah, I remember the last show in Los Angeles. Um, Bono had just said something like, you know, at the drive-in is the saviors of rock and roll. He mentioned that quote 
in Rolling Stone like a couple of days before the LA show so that when the bus pulled up to the venue in LA, uh, it was, I mean, the shows were getting bigger. Every show, the venues had to be pushed up like the last week of the tour. They were getting so big because of this Rolling Stone article. And, um, but when we got to LA, it was just packed madhouse, like media, like the bus got mobbed. And it was because Bono was supposedly there and that, that article had come out and there was a lot of celebrities at the venue to go see at the drive-in. So it was a really wow. exciting, exciting show. Um, but anyhow, yeah, so I did that. And then that led to a bunch of other tour manager jobs. The, the record label for Eastern Youth, this Japanese um, label, there was a guy, Kenji there, who started hiring me to work for his own record label that he was starting. And he was putting out bands from Norway, Poor Rich Ones and Evan Johansson, a couple different kind of like Coldplay style artists. So it was like really cool. We, we went on, a, he put me out on the road with these, these bands. Um, the cool thing is, is like, it wasn't just tour manager because I had a sales background. I was also selling the records into shops, not while I was on a tour. I mean, I did, you know, stop in on some record stores. We did some like in-store performances, but before I went on the road, you know, I was calling stores to get all the records into the stores before we went on these tours. So I was like sales guy while I was off the road and I was tour manager while I was on the road. And that was really cool. We, we went on tour with this one band, Poor Rich Ones, I was the tour manager for. And uh, the band we were co-headlining with was called Carissa's Weird. And just a few, late, few years later after that tour, that, the three of those members from Carissa's Weird became huge in a band called Band of Horses. That band was massive for a while. Wow. They're still doing well, but yeah, so that was kind of cool. Um, but then I started, I did that for a couple of years and we did, um, Eastern Youth, Eastern Youth was invited back to come to the States um, with Cursive uh, on Saddle Creek Records. It's a cool, cool project. Um, we did a few more Jimmy Eat World shows. Um, yeah, and, and uh, they just, they just did a lot of like cool shows and on the West coast. And, uh, so I tour managed them. And, uh, when I was off the road, I was selling, I, I took on a bunch of record, record label clients. That one job led to like having a roster of 15 small independent labels that wanted to use my service to get in, get their distribution going and get into record stores. So, you know, I helped, um, a lot of cool record labels, um, do the same thing that I was doing for that other label. So essentially and you almost found like records. this, sorry, you, so you, so you, you essentially made this like almost a side hustle for yourself for having the relationship with all these record stores. That's what it was. Yeah. And it was cool because record stores got phone calls from salespeople all the time. Like phone calls were one thing, but they get a phone call for me. And then like a month later, I'd show up at their record store and say, Hey, it's me. And we talked on the phone. Um, or beforehand, I would say, hey, I'm going to actually be in your town in a month and a half. Um, let's set up a record, like a, 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 an in-store performance with the artist. So that was a really good combination. I don't know that any other tour managers were doing it like that. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, but anyway, so having all those clients for my, my, my record label sales business, the side hustle, as you called it, uh, Fearless Records became one of my clients. And um, they liked what I was doing. The first record I worked for them was Punk Goes Pop 1, the original Punk Goes Pop. Like wow. The first one was Punk Goes Metal, but in 2002, Punk Goes Pop came out. And that was the first project I worked with them on. And uh, they offered me a job like three months later. And I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And uh, I moved out to California. And uh, yeah, we... We, uh, that's, I was first the sales guy for the label. And I think one of the other first records I work was the first plain white tees album called stop. And that was in, yeah, around the same time. And some other bands uh, at the drive-in was on the label at the time and, or they were broken up, but they, they had the catalog there. And, um, yeah, so I worked for them about a year and a half and then got offered the general manager position. So that was going from not only just getting sales done, but then managing a staff of people. Um, and then, yeah, I worked there for 13 years, but 
the question was, how did I get into the music business? And I think, <laughs> well, you, you explained it pretty yeah. well, actually. So I'm very yeah. curious, but that's amazing though, because you, it sounds like within fearless, you, you went up the ranks pretty quickly within, within the company. Was there, was there a reason behind that? Were you t- taking certain kinds of initiatives at even just doing sales that they realized that you had leadership capabilities? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a small, it was a small place when I started, there was, you know, five, six, seven of us maybe. And, um, I think maybe the, the answer is that I had some entrepreneurial spirit, you know, like the, the founder of the company, Bob Becker. Um, he, you know, he was an entrepreneur, he was a promoter and then record label owner. Um, and then, uh, I had some of those same ambitions. He was also a sales guy before he was doing all that. So we had a sort of a similar background and I think he saw that and gave me a chance. So it was awesome. That's amazing. So now during, so you also had all this experience doing tour. Do Were you also doing tour management now also within Fearless or what was your, what was your essentially your duties at that point in time? Uh, no, I, I, uh, well, the first, three months I worked for them, it was part-time because I was still tour managing. And um, so I was sort of coming into the office when I was full-time when I was off the road. But uh, I stopped tour managing about three or four months after being hired by Fearless. And I was full-time doing sales, calling record stores, working with our distributor. Um, at this time, like eMusic, and I, eMusic was the first like MP3 sales service before mm-hmm. iTunes. Yep, and I remember iTunes that. came in. So it was like learning the game of MP3s and 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 cuz we were still just doing CD vinyl cassettes back then and then everything was being stolen on um the file sharing sites and uh and all of that. Napster was the thing. And uh yeah, so I had to learn that game and we we were one of the first labels to sign up with eMusic and then also one of the first to have a direct account with iTunes. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, we had a really early relationship with Apple iTunes, um, and that I think that was really key. So, talking about auditorium management for a second, uh, obviously, so many things happen while you're on the road, both good as well as bad. So, is there, from all your years' experience being on the road, is there a fundamental lesson that you've learned um, from all the tours that you've been a part of? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, tour managing was like three years of my career and, and I loved it. I loved it because you were in a new city every day and it was exciting and there was always something going on and, and you're meeting so many people every day and your network just really grows. Um, but it's also dangerous and you're putting your life at risk. And, you know, uh, there was some real close calls, you know, in, you know, with driving. And I just think, um, it put the fear into me and that's why I really kind of wanted to get off, off the road and get a desk job. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess the thing about touring is it's, it's a fun lifestyle. It's exciting. You're, 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 um, you just live in the dream for a while there, but I guess I would want to stress to people that these bands, they do it. There's so many artists out there doing it for so little money. It's just for that excitement. And they're really putting their lives on the line every time they travel in these dangerous rigs, you know, these vans pulling these heavy trailers on gnarly roads in the winter. So I think that's the lesson is like, you can't take anything for granted. Like um, we've lost some good bands and good band members to those, those tours. And I just want all the fans listening to realize that what these guys go through and girls go through on the road, it's dangerous and um appreciate it and when live music comes back support all these artists you know do it because they really do put their lives on the line to go out there and do it for you absolutely they don't get much they don't get too much money at least in the early days um so yeah go support them yeah it, it's it's interesting that you made that mention and uh that not many people think about the the perils of traveling because of the fact that it's not only the fact that there is they are lugging so much 
gear with them and you're having these big rigs that they're traveling on the roads with them under all kinds of different road conditions and weather conditions um but the same token too they're traveling constantly on the road so the risk is much higher than most people than when you're doing your normal commute so yeah it is it is dangerous out there and i've you know there's so many people that you like you mentioned have lost their lives um because of going on tour so it you know it's definitely something to to always be mindful about and not just you know not even the perils of the roads themselves but the perils of even being the you know going to the hotels and finding places to stay and i mean i've heard all kinds of horror stories about those and and um you know trailers getting clipped and then all of a sudden all their gear has been taken away i mean i've heard too many of those stories where you know all their gear and instruments got stolen you know it is it is dangerous going on tour but like you said, the artists love, you know, love to do it. They love to interact with their audience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you have some of your best memories out there and you don't, you don't really remember too many of the worst ones, but I was on tour during nine 11. I was in New York city the night in New York city. 9/11. Yep. Wow. I was in New York city and had many friends there. Nobody. Well, I did, I did lose um, uh, a whole bunch of coworkers, that company I worked for the, uh, the telecom company I mentioned uh, they had, an office with like 40 people in tower two. And, wow. um, yeah, one of the, one of the, uh, heroes of the day, this guy, Kevin was one of the people on TV that was known. He was being seen going up the stairs to go rescue people and bring them down. He made like two or three trips, but, um, but yeah, that was, so that was there. And then, um, I was touring with a Norwegian artist called poor rich ones at the time. And we had to get them to, uh, Washington DC the next day, uh, September 12th. And, uh, so we were the night before they wanted to see the world trade center. So the night before it happened, we got a picture at the base of the, uh, of the tower in front of the, the world trade center sign. And then they got on a plane. Um, yeah. So, you know, it must've been like the 10th and then they got our, they got on a plane that morning, whatever it was. So it was just crazy as a blur, but that's surreal. Yeah. So I was at the base like the day before it happened. So it was crazy. But, um, but yeah, like that, that not to, you know, talk about the negative times. There's, there's so many good ones, like in Arizona, um, where you're at, like, uh, Eastern youth was on tour with Jimmy E world an Arizona band, of course. And we were at this old venue called Nita's hideaway back. Uh, this is also 2001 timeframe before they had really blown up with bleed American, but the album hadn't been out, but um, the song, the middle would, they knew that was the single. They made the original video while we were on tour there at Nita's hideaway. And uh, it was, it was set up on the stage outside of a venue. And uh, there was a, there was a sandstorm brewing. We could see it off in the distance, but we didn't know how quickly. Of course it, it is. For anybody who doesn't live in Arizona, that's a very common thing, especially during the summertime. We get these, literally, I'm not joking, they're sandstorms. Uh, you, you can see them in the distance. It look, looks like out of the sci-fi movie, this gigantic, what, what we call a haboob, and it just comes like crawling across. It looks so menacing. It's, really, but it's, it's mostly dust, like that's really what it is, but it looks so menacing when it comes. <laughs> It did. Uh, I mean, cause I was, I'm from, I'm from the East coast. We don't have sandstorms. And, you know, I was with these guys from Japan. They don't have sandstorms here either. And, um, but yeah, so Jimmy world was, they were having all these technical difficulties and we're like, man, hurry up, get this video shoot done. Cause that sandstorm looked like it's going to hit. And sure enough, right in the middle of the video shoot, it rolled through and very few people left. Everybody stayed pretty much. And they just kept filming. And uh, I'm not sure what happened to that music video. I know it didn't end up, end up becoming the, official video for middle but i'm gonna look it up on youtube and see if it came out because that was pretty awesome yeah uh, absolutely i gotta find that too i'm a huge jimmy world fan so i definitely want to find that yeah so uh going back to then uh you're uh working at fearless so you're changing you know, obviously you're changing the various roles within the company and you're literally seeing the company grow before your very eyes um, can you talk um, a little bit more about your experience there? Like what, what is one of the things that you, cause you've been there for 13 years. What was one of the most proud, proudest moments, uh, working with fearless? Ooh, um, yeah, just the whole experience together, I guess is, is, is really, you know, I'm proud to have been a part of that, that company 
that family, the culture, and just um, the people that were involved in it. I'm proud of every one of them. Everybody who ever worked there or I worked with was amazing. And I still keep in touch with a lot of those people. But uh, yeah, so 2002 to 2015, 16 is about the time frame. Um, but I guess just taking a company, um, you know, from five, seven employees up to 20 employees, you know, from, from the goal of, you know, maybe selling 20, 30, 40,000 albums for an artist being like a big success to gold and platinum becoming the standard. Um, so four years into it there, you know, five years into it, plain white tees, um, had a number one hit in like 14 countries. And when I say number one, like number one selling song, number one, like on the radio charts, it was just a big hit. And having a small punk rock label in California um, take on a global hit when we didn't even really have global, full proper global distribution at the time, that was quite an experience. We got an education we had to learn the game quickly, you know, because it was the Grammys. It was, you know, Yoko Ono and John Lennon sitting right next to Tom from Play My Tees in the, in the Grammys. And it was the big stage. And uh, once we got a taste of that, we just, we just tried to keep it going. Like, so I guess what I'm proud of is that we did keep it going, you know, from after that point, um, you know, gold and platinum became the standard. And we tried to follow that up each year with the success of, um, of, of breaking, breaking bands and, and, you know, having those every year growing the company. And, and it's true. Like the company did grow every single year, except for that one year that every company suffered in 2009, when that, that big real estate crash happened, I don't think we grew, but every other year we, we had growth. And, um, yeah, so I guess that's, I guess what I'm proud of other than just you know, having been able to work and serve the musicians and work with all those bands. It's an awesome, awesome experience. That's incredible. Now, we both know that it's not always a bed full of roses. And we also know that there's a lot of struggle, especially with a growing company like that and growing so quickly. Um, I'm sure there's been uh, a lot of challenges as well as maybe a couple of disasters here and there along the way. Um, are there any that uh, stick out to your mind of, uh, don't, I don't necessarily have to name names, but were there any uh, points where <laughs> things just really did not go according to plan or, <laughs> or things or like a, a bunch of, uh, you know, roadblocks along the way? Jeez. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely no better roses. There's, there's always drama going on. I mean, I think the toughest days were when, records leaked. And I don't know that that even really happens much anymore because people aren't like hunting down leaked records, but that used to be a thing. Like there'd be kids on the internet that would like stock out record labels to try to like hackers that would hack in and try to find their unreleased albums. And, and, you know, we'd have to give promo music, advanced music to, to media and press to, to get them to cover the record. And kids would steal that and put it up on the internet. So when records leak, how do you explain that? to an artist, you know, like, how do you tell them that there's no surprise anymore? You know, like that was really tough. Um, so I think those were the biggest dramatic things. Uh, one time we had a kid hold, uh, hold an, an album ransom. This kid on a little wow. island. Yeah, it was this kid on a little island in the UK. I think it was the Breathe Carolina record. I don't count, don't quote me on that, but I had to deal with this as the, the, the GM of the company. But he um, hacked into our server, got the album, and then he said he was he was this young fifteen year old kid um, in a small little island off the coast of England, and he said he was going to leak the album if we didn't have the band tweet about his Twitter handle and make him internet famous. <laughs> 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 you that, know, that's actually not that bad of a ransom if you think about it. Like, you know, at least he could have asked for like money or like all kinds of different things and just held it ransom. But just a simple tweet from the band, that's all he wanted. That's what he wanted. That was his ransom demand. <laughs> so, you know, but I wasn't having it. So all I did was um, I looked him up 
somehow we were able to geo target where he was. I looked up the town where he was from. It was like 300 people, this tiny little island. Oh, wow. I called up the police station at the, at the island and I just talked to, you know, Constable, Constable Smith or whoever it was, you know, and he was this funny guy and he was like, oh yeah, I, I know him. He's a troublemaker. And uh, he's like, I'll go down. He, he's only a couple of doors down from here. <laughs> and, he, and he went down to the guy's house and basically, you know, told the kid that, you know, he better not do anything and, or this record company in California is going to sue him. And um, yeah, so, so we got out of that one. But wow. uh, funny, thing, funny things like that. Um, but yeah, those, those type of things happen. You know, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I, it's strange to think of the, I haven't, I don't really think about all the negative type things, but there were just like, there was, it's mostly positive, but um, there was a band once that signed to Fearless and I'm not going to name names. Maybe I should, cause they were, they deserve it, but they got signed and their very first day, uh, first time coming to the office, they showed up. Uh, the singer didn't even show up. He was too cool. Like he was, I'm not going to go to the record label office you know i don't want anything to do with that um the other two guys showed up and got to meet the staff and they were just totally rude like on their phones talking like looking at their phones while we're trying to talk to them they didn't like they looked like they didn't want to have anything to do with us and I'm like what did you guys sign sign to our label for um shame on us for not doing our research a little bit more but they were they were super talented i'll give them that the singer showed up drunk like two hours later, broad daylight, you know, just totally drunk. We dropped the band that day. We dropped them. Wow. You know, it's we interesting. We, we, we didn't give them any, they didn't give us any money back or anything like that. Luckily we hadn't spent to record a record, but they were dropped on the spot. Well, because you knew that, that if that's the precedent of the relationship, you knew it's not going to, it was not going to go well. At that yeah. point, they're not going and to. And it didn't. It didn't go well for them. That that was the end. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Is like if that's how they're going to treat the the representation, the label, or just anybody in general, how are they treating each other? You know, and that that's a huge tell to show that you know there's going to just be problems down the way. I've that's happened to you know to us a number of times where you know we just felt like that this artist was not going to necessarily be the right fit and so forth. Or sometimes we took a risk because we felt that they were really talented. We saw some early warning signs that there might be some issues, but they were so such a talented band or they had a lot of, you know, a lot of potential behind it that we still decided to take the risk. And I would say like nine times out of 10, we should have stuck with our gut and just, you know, realize that this, this is not going to be worth it because most of the time, if they're not treating you with, if there's no mutual respect between the two parties, it's not going to go well, no matter how much you feel like it's going to. If there's no respect there, if there's no proper communication that's going on, if the expectations aren't being met um, from both parties, it doesn't it doesn't matter how talented they are. It's just not going to it's just not going to end well. It really isn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it was mostly it was mostly good times. I'm sure. um there, maybe there's some artists that would disagree with me, but uh, in in the end, I think the artists that worked worked hard, the artists that were successful, to be honest, I think they, in some cases, they worked harder than the record label. They were always one step ahead. Plain White Tees was like that. At the Drive-In was like that. Um, Mayday Parade and so many of these great bands, they were one step ahead, just like couldn't keep up because they were that passionate and that dedicated to their craft. Um, and the bands that had huge success, they all showed, showed those qualities. You know, and, and that's, um, a, that's a really good point. I'm glad that you brought that up because I hear this question a lot um, when either I'm getting interviewed or by artists in general is they ask us these questions like, how do we get signed? How do we get signed? How do we get signed? And believe me, I get all these questions all the time saying, how do I get onto Fearless? How do I get onto Fearless? How do I get onto Fearless? And I tell him, I look, look, you, you have to, you know, if, if you want the attention of a label, you should already have a lot, you should already be doing the same things that a label would be doing. You need to understand the industry and the business. You already should be hustling. You should already be building your audience. We are here as an extension of your own team. You should be doing, like you said, is that, you know, we shouldn't be working as representation harder than you. 
it's your career. It's it's your passion. You're the one who should be working the most. We're here to just we're here to support you. We're here so that we can amplify what you're already are doing well. And a lot of artists don't a lot of times artists don't really understand that because they get I can see that they get very frustrated because they want to be further down the line. They want their music to be heard and they want their audience to grow, but they're not sure about how to go about doing that. And so they're looking at labels as essentially their white knight that's going to solve all those problems for them. And the reality is that's not the case at all. If you don't have those if you don't have those problems already solved, a label's most likely not going to solve them for you. In fact, if anything, if that if there's fundamental problems within your band that is not working, it's just going to amplify more of the problems. Yeah, no, it gets tough in those situations. Um, if expectations aren't met, um, everybody goes into it with a grand plan. And when it doesn't go to plan, it gets tough. And it, it's, it's common that everybody points the fingers at each other. But the, the bands that... Um, get through that are the, the ones that, like I said, they're, they're sort of one step ahead. They have a positive attitude and they know that, um, they, they know they, it's a team effort and it really is a partnership and you can't, you know, be at odds with your partner, even in the tough times you have to come together and communicate. And, um, we did that well. Sometimes we didn't do it well other times. Um, and, and I think, but the cases where it worked is when, everybody worked together and, and, it, and we did support them. I'm, I'm saying when the artists, when we felt like we were two steps behind the artists, it motivated us to catch up, to work our asses off, to meet that artist's expectation and rise to their level of commitment. And we did sometimes, and sometimes we didn't, but, but we tried to. And, and I was always more motivated by those type of artists that were just like day in, day out hustling and they knew they couldn't get their record their record company's attention 365 days a year like they were going to put into it but a good the good ones could get us 200 days of the year you know and and that's a lot that and is a had, lot you know we didn't have a massive roster ever it's still the company that doesn't have a huge roster it's always been 10 to 15 bands active bands on the roster which i, I liked i'm proud of that i liked that we never we resisted the temptation to go sign 30, 40 artists to see if we could, you know, get three, get lucky on three or four of them or something like that. So actually that's a good point is that were you, uh, uh, as, as general manager, I assume that you were part of the, uh, sele- uh, process of selecting who you want to sign on to the comp to the company, correct? On sign on to the label. Not so much, uh, only in the sense that before Bob Becker, who did most of the signings, uh, the founder, um, he did have A&R guys as well throughout the okay. years. He still does that would, um, sign, sign artists to the label. Um, but usually I would get, get it at the final stage where they're cutting the deal and they would want me to do like an analysis on, you know, on the terms and like, how quickly can we make the investment back? And, um, does, you know, is this something that you think, will be easy to get on Apple and Spotify and target Best Buy, Walmart. Like you think we can get it there. What's the path. And, and they would want to know like those type of things for me. But um, yeah, even as a musician, like I was not in the creative record making business. I was in personnel, like managing the staff and managing the top sales accounts. Interesting. That was my, that was my role and glow our global business, you know, like making sure that we could, capitalize on on the global um hit the next time it came around so i'm sure you're doing a lot of networking then to to making sure that you all have all these contacts with all these different organizations and companies across the whole world yeah yeah that was that was a big part of of the day is you know keeping that network growing and keeping the people in my network warm how did you go i i know that you know obviously it's networking these days is very different than it was back then, but, um, what were things that you were doing to keep those, to keep those relationships? Phone calls, uh, you know, I was a phone guy, like coming from a sales background, I was very comfortable on the phone and just making a lot of phone calls. Um, I actually, you know, preferred the phone sometimes to like South by Southwest or, you know, like I'd go to South by Southwest and like music conventions and stuff like that, trade shows or whatever. 
and and network. Um, but I, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like I felt like I could cover more ground on the phone. Um, but yeah, trips to meet with our distributors or whenever our international partners were coming to the States, definitely trying to, you know, spend time with them. Um, and then of course, going to Minneapolis where Best Buy and Target have their headquarters a lot and Seattle where Amazon and a lot of like play, play music, Microsoft, all those partners are there. Um, San Francisco, of course, where Apple and um, Pandora and some of those counts. So New York, there's just a lot of business trips and stuff, but um, I liked the phone. It was easier. That's fair. I'm a more of a, you know, of a, I'm also born like I'm, I'm currently 36 years old. So for me, I was at that weird point where I was old enough to understand what life was like before the internet, but I was also young enough to really adapt to the internet too. So for me, I'm totally about texting and messaging and doing all those things. Like to me, that's the quickest form of communication possible. So, um, you know, that's me is like, I'm all for that. And I, for me, I, I'm not that much of a phone guy, even though I did technical support for, for over 12 years. So I was on the phone all the time, but, uh, I preferred, you know, texting and emailing and message, you know, and Facebook messaging or whatever the case is that that's always been my form of communication. Yeah, I've adapted. So I've, I've come, I've come into the 21st century and oh, I, good. Do, <laughs> I do message, I do message now. So, and I zoom and all the different video things, but absolutely. And that's the thing is that, you know, some people talk about the fact that because there's no conferences going on and so forth. And I get asked the question about networking, you know, how can you network right now? And I said, the irony is that networking right now is actually easier than it has ever been. Networking is easier now because everybody still wants to connect with each other, but now they're doing it virtually. So you don't even have to go anywhere. You can be in your home. I've literally have been making connections in Nashville because I got a hold of people that were doing these virtual, virtual networking sessions. And now I'm building my connection base in Nashville more. So that I wouldn't even have been aware of it, let alone having a group of people that I would be able to connect with if they were just doing it physically. So because of those reasons, I find it's a lot easier uh, doing Zoom calls in general. I mean, for me it's personally, I feel that it's more, uh, more personable than doing it even over the phone, let alone doing messaging. So because of the fact that so many people are now are so used to doing video conferencing as well as the fact that everybody's home. So, there's not as much traveling happening, which is usually a big excuse why people can't meet or talk to you on the phone or, or respond to you back. It's because they're traveling. Well, you're not, <laughs> not yeah. as many people are traveling right now. Not as many people are doing in-person meetings or anything along those lines. So in some ways, there's a lot of people that normally would be so impossible to get a hold of are now accessible. And this is the perfect time to, to build out your network and to connect with people as much as possible because once people are starting to travel again safely and to go back to these conferences and so forth, you want to already have those relationships with those people. No, you're right. I mean, you're talking to somebody who lives in Japan. I mean, right. I, uh, for the last four years, I've had to use video conferencing to keep my network going. And um, it hasn't been as hard as I thought it would be. And I, my, my original plan was only two years. Um, and, and I thought I'd be right back. I have a place in LA, um, that we're running out, but I, uh, I thought I'd be back there, but there's not this great urgency, of course, because of the pandemic, but there's not this great urgency to go back to be in the network. Um, certainly I'd love to get to Nashville and LA and New York just to, you know, see all my friends and contacts there. And I will do that hopefully next year, or this, this, this year even, but, um, yeah, it's not as necessary. Like I, um, the good thing about Japan time zone, it's 16 hours ahead of most of the U.S. But when musicians are night night owls, so like they're not up in the morning, so they're up from like you know, not all of them, but they're they they're up from late morning to 2 a.m. and that's perfect for my time schedule here in Japan. So um, it works out for me perfectly. So let's go back uh, to a quick second. So after your time at Fearless, you went on to uh, working for Sony. Can you talk a, talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, at the 13-year point or maybe even the 12-year point at Fearless, um, I, was, I always found myself asking me, like, how long am I going to be here? 
you know, like, should I, you know, do, does anybody have a 30 year career anymore at one company? It just, it sounds like something my grandparents' generation or my parents' generation would have done, you know? And so I had those thoughts, but also um, at the time, you know, we were talking about selling the company, partners in the company were, were considering a sale and, and not, and what I want people to understand about that, it wasn't from a position of weakness. Cause like I mentioned, our business was going up every year. Um, so we were selling from a position of strength and it was a resource move. It was at least the idea behind it. Um, being a, a, a medium sized independent label, but not having a radio staff, you know, like radio is such a big thing for rock bands. So um, it was very expensive to do that. And part of the, the partnership or the sale was to gain radio staff, you know, the sync business, um, just, just broader, um, you know, music industry strength and the, and the, and the company that sold to had that as a large independent. And, uh, but after the sale, I worked for the comp the new company that bought fearless, um, for about nine months. And I just really wasn't feeling the cultural vibe. I liked the small, you know, 20 person staff. I, I liked the independence that we had and it did in this, uh, big, you know, corporate Beverly Hills office, uh, that they had, it just didn't feel like home. And I was like, if I'm going to, be in a big corporate office, then I've always been curious about the major label world and, and what that, what that's all about. And I never worked for a major label. I was like, if I'm going to do that, I might as well try the real thing. And so I, I um, luckily was sort of recruited by Sony and um, you know, an old friend who was running the rock division of Sony, which at the time is called, it was the century media group or, or uh, another century is what it was called. And they were doing like, rock and alternative artists, but also they had the metal label Century Media and the prog label Inside Out Records, and they were owned by Sony. And uh, so it was a good, a, good exam, a good opportunity for me to use my artist development skills, developing artists to get to a major um, business, you know, like I think they recruited me for those reasons. So um, that was great for me. It got me out of a sort of what was becoming a negative situation, driving, you know, an hour and a half every day to, you know, go, go to a place that didn't feel like home. And um, not that Sony felt like home right away, but I did know a lot of the people that I was going to be working with there. And uh, it was, it was exactly what I thought it would be. And, and uh, it wasn't scary. Sony was not like this big corporate machine that I was, you know, anything to be afraid of, or a lot of the, the rumors are really not true, but in some sense they are, they do, um, at majors, because they're publicly traded companies, they have um, a responsibility to their, share, their shareholders and federal trade commission laws. So there was a lot of paperwork and red tape always with every project. You couldn't do certain things that you could do with a privately owned company. Um, so that was, you know, that, that was true. But everything else, it was just, it was just like anything else. It was the record business, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it was short-lived because I sort of knew I wanted to stop being in the label business. It wasn't interesting to me anymore. Uh, some people might take that as like, well, man, you had this dream job, you know, you were, you were, you're doing this, like, why would you just give that up? So many other people might would die to have that role, but you have to love what you're doing. And I, I did love it. But after a certain point, I, I thought, I wasn't, I lost the passion a little bit and I wanted to find a new passion. I knew I wanted to stay in music. Um, and I thought, what do I really like to do? And education was it for me. I just loved um, working with the new artists when they came through those doors. Um, not the drunk ones, but the, the sober ones. <laughs> I liked, I loved when they came through the doors and that the, the education moment, you know, like, but I didn't get to do enough of it. Like a lot of the artists came through unprepared to grow their business and to really um, work with their team to, to quickly have success. And we, we didn't have a lot of time to stop and educate and it really wasn't my primary job. My job was to get their music into shops and, 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 and onto platforms and manage my staff. Um, but I really, in hindsight, wish I could have put them through a boot camp or put them through my own record industry 101 
and 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 taught them how to teach them how to make a business. So um, I wanted to do that. So I said, you know, what, I'm going to start a company. That's what my new company, Band Builder Academy, is about. Um, it's just basically, it's like exactly what I would have handed those artists the first day they walked into Fearless, so that they had a roadmap and they knew exactly what they needed to do to succeed. And so I built that, and it took me a couple years to do it. Um, but it's been out for about a year now. And uh, I knew I wanted to do that even probably before I left Fearless, that I wanted to do something like that. Wow. So that's where the idea grew. And a year into Sony, um, you know, I put in my notice. I said, you know, my wife is Japanese and we wanted to get our daughter educated and, and bilingual. And I said, you know what, let's, let's just do it. I want to start a business. I want to be an entrepreneur again. Um, so I... I was fully prepared to just, you know, quit, make zero income and walk away and move my family to Japan. And so I did that. But one of the nice things was, is um, my boss at Sony, uh, Don, thank you very much for that. He, he was a, he's a great guy. Um, he, uh, he, he said, well, why don't you stay on as a consultant? You know, not full time, but I, you know, that was nice because it gave me a landing strip for that. It's not, a, it's not cheap to move from America to Japan and start a new business. So it was nice. Right. I, you know, I got to work with them on some great projects for the next six months after I left. And um, no, that was a really good way to do it. You know, so um, I'm thankful for all of my days at Sony, all the people there were awesome and they treated me so well. And uh, I still keep in touch. Some of them. It's great. That's really fantastic. And it's good to hear those things that, you know, when you have your fellow colleagues that are so supportive, especially when you're moving on to new ventures. So it's, you know, that's the thing is that what I've learned too, that a lot of people um, sometimes will think about, you know, these larger entities and it's all about the, just the numbers. But, you know, at least from my own personal experiences as well, I find that's usually quite the opposite is that when you are sometimes in these organizations, you know, work with these people in these organizations and collaborate with them. A lot of them are are just truly passionate about what they're doing. They're do they're there for a reason. It's because they love they love what they're doing, and That's right. uh, and they you know and it, when the culture is right, as you mentioned, especially with Fearless, um, of of all those years, is that you know you you have that camaraderie between each other because you're all doing something that you love to do and you're doing it together, and. You know, I, that's why I've been finding is like it doesn't matter how large the company is. I'll find yeah. that sometimes the nicest people in the largest in la largest organizations, and they're more than happy to support others because most of the time they've been in your shoes at one point. They everyone start had to start somewhere, and a lot of them understand that and they appreciate that fact. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. So, um. You know, talking about all the experiences and, and, and leading into Band Builder um, and and creating that company, I'm sure that uh, quite a bit has changed in the music industry in comparison to today, um, in comparison to when you first got started. Um, can you talk about um, some of the biggest differences that you've that you've witnessed um, throughout your entire career so far? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously the format changes, you know, like... Um, uh, I, uh, I loved how vinyl was not really a thing. I mean, in the punk community, vinyl was always there, never went away, but you know, the CD was obviously on the decline, the MP3 and then the streaming formats took over, but I love, you know, the vinyl, um, resurgence and how that has continued to grow. Um, so the format changes are something that comes to mind, especially in my line of work as sales guy. Um, but, you know, like uh, the relationships and the bands, like that really hasn't changed. I will say the quality. I feel like the quality is getting better. Definitely in like the recordings and um, just the talent level. I think kids have so many more resources when they're learning to play guitar, or just going to YouTube and there's online courses they can take. And it's so easy to get awesome at your instrument, you know. Um, it also sort of weeds out uh who the real talented players are um as well i think so that's changed like the talent pool seems way better than it's ever been um now i'm not saying that just because they're great players at their instrument uh makes them better than past generations because you know like um 
you know, there, there's the, the, you know, the greats, uh, you know, the Jimi Hendrix and the, you know, the prodigies of the songwriters, like the Neil Young's and the Bob Dylan's and all the great songwriters. Like, um, I, you know, I don't know that that's got any better, the songwriting and, and the overall product hasn't got better, but the, definitely the, the playing has gotten better. Um, but I do think, you know, kids have a lot more business sense than they did when I was, when I was starting or previous generations. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think those are the, those are the changes for the record industry. I think they become a little less relevant in some ways, of course, you know, with like being able to, uh, self-release your music, retain 80, 90, even a hundred percent of your royalties and earnings instead of giving up, you know, 80% to the record label. I think that's a massive change and that's going to continue to go. Um, towards 50-50 or more even in the artist's favor. Um, so, you know, the, the um, ability to do things yourself are, are increasing. Um, social media has been important ever since it started. I mean, with the MySpace stuff and, um, you know, of course, after that. But TikTok is just another example of how uh, that's dominating the music industry right now. Somebody told me, like, 130 signings from the major labels in 2020 came from TikTokers or yep. I don't know if it was just TikTokers or social media, but labels aren't really signing a ton of new artists right now because, well, if you want to develop a new artist, it's hard to develop them by putting them on the road. Um, but also it's just, uh, it's risky in the, in this downward, you know, economy that we're in, but nothing risky about signing a TikToker that has 2 million followers. You know, there's nothing risky about that. So. It's true, but there's always and risk involved. There's always yeah, some there's sort always of, risk. there's always risk involved. Right. And, and that's what I, I explained. It's like when you're a label representation, you know, that is all, that is all risk. It really just becomes to a risk assessment of how much of risk that is, but it is all risk. There's no, you know, you're not getting paid directly. You know, we're not getting paid directly to represent that band. There's no transaction there like that. It's all percentage based. So we don't know what, you know, ultimately we, we make our best guesses as far as what we expect, you know, as you even mentioned yourself is like the logistics behind, okay, this is the artist that we're big on board. These are the different players that we can talk to and, and try to make something happen. But at the end of the day, there's no way to really know what's going to succeed and what's not going to. And that, that has always been the risk of, of, of labels is that that's the rest that we take. And that's why a lot of times that's the arrangements that we have um, as labels is because we have to protect ourselves because if something doesn't work or whatever the case is, cause there, I like to say that there's has to be so many things to, to go uh, right to have a success and only a few things to go wrong to make it be a complete failure. And, uh, yeah. you know, and that's the thing is that we, you know, we have to, we have to protect that. We have to protect ourselves. Otherwise our, you know, the business will fold. Yeah. Well, so yeah, there is now there's this backlog too of, of, um, touring, like you mentioned and yep. then signings, you know, and, um, if, if I'm running, if I'm at the record label these days and making decisions, I'm thinking, okay we couldn't put out some of the records we needed to last year because of the timing. So those are first in line, the artists that had their records pushed back, then the records that the artists that had their records on the schedule for this time period there, those are being pushed back, but they're second in line. And then new signings coming in is sort of third in line behind the, the current roster. So there's, there's definitely um, yeah, a backlog of, of things to get to in 2021, 2022. Absolutely. The other thing too is, you know, I I hear this a lot too with a lot of people that in a lot of labels in general or even management is not interested in doing any kind of signings right now. Not only because of the priorities of who are they currently working with, but in addition to that too, because everything is changing so rapidly right now within our industry that a lot of people are just kind of waiting and seeing what happens, saying, okay, we're gonna try things out with what we currently have and see where things go because with no shows, okay, are we doing, you know, are we focusing our attention on live streaming? Are we put, you know, are we putting more strategy into TikTok right now? Cause like you said, that's, that's, that's huge for the music community and music industry is TikTok. You know, should we be concentrating on other types of platforms? Should we be doubling down on our licensing and sync more because we really haven't been focusing on that as much, you know, whatever the case is, a lot of, a lot of these companies are reassessing 
how they do things, period. So because of those reasons, it's it's hard to justify bringing on a new signing when even the company itself doesn't really know what direction they want to go in yet. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So uh, thank you so much, Todd. This was a, a fantastic, uh, fantastic interview. So I really do appreciate, appreciate being on the podcast. So thank you so much. Oh, yeah. It was a pleasure, Mike. Good talking to you. And let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. To learn more about 8020 Records, you can check us out on pretty much any social media at 8020records or visit our website at www.8020records.com. Until next time, be happy, be healthy, and be productive. <laughs>